0: Uh, when you turn with me in Mark chapter 15, if you're looking in one of the few Bibles, it's found on page 1013. As you're turning there, if you're wondering why someone was taking some pictures today, we'll uh, to take some pictures for our website. we try to update our website maybe uh, a couple times a year uh, with just uh, pictures that reflect who we are as a congregation. So... Uh, just wanted to mention that, you're aware of that. Uh, we'll be reading today Mark 15, verses 6 to 32. Uh, so we're looking at these last couple of chapters in the Gospel of Mark as we're leading up towards Easter Sunday. And as we've said, Mark focuses on the last 24 hours of Jesus' life in chapter 14 and 15. And he sort of slows down uh, the pace of the story Uh, And it's sort of an invitation for us to slow down and take a long look at Jesus Christ and consider uh, what Mm -hmm. he did for us uh, and why he went through what he endured um, uh, for our redemption. So let me read uh, beginning at verse 6. Last week we looked at Jesus' trials before uh, the the, the Jewish council and before the Roman governor Pilate. Uh, And now this is uh, after his trial before Pilate. Mark 15, beginning in verse 6. Now at the feast, Pilate used to release for them one prisoner for whom they asked. And among the rebels in prison who had committed murder in the insurrection, there was a man called Barabbas. And the crowd came up and began to ask Pilate to do as he usually did for them. What evil has he done? But they shouted all the more, Crucify him! So Pilate, wishing to satisfy the crowd, released for them Barabbas. And having scourged Jesus, he delivered him to be crucified. And the soldiers led him away inside the palace, that is, the governor's headquarters, and they called together the whole battalion, and they clothed him in a purple cloak. And twisting together a crown of thorns, they put it on him. And they began to salute him, Hail, king of the Jews! And they were striking his head with a reed, and spitting on him, and kneeling down in homage to him. And when they had mocked him, they stripped him of the purple cloak, and put his own clothes on him. And they led him out to crucify him. And they compelled a passerby, Simon of Cyrene, who was coming in from the country, the father of Alexander and Rufus, to carry his cross. And they brought him to the place called Golgotha, which means place of a skull. And they offered him wine mixed with myrrh, but he did not take it. And they crucified him and divided his garments among them, casting lots for them to decide what he should take. And it was the third hour, that is about 9 a.m., when they crucified him. And the inscription of the charge against him read, The King of the Jews. And with him they crucified two robbers, one on his right and one on his left. And those who passed by derided him, wagging their heads and saying, Aha! Have you ever had a day when nothing seems to go right, (laughs) when everything seems to go wrong? Or have you ever found yourself in a situation where it feels like the world is falling apart around you and there is absolutely nothing you can do to fix it or make it better? That's the kind of day Mark describes in this passage we just read. Now, if you've been reading through the Gospel of Mark, we've been going through the whole thing, uh, part by part, when you come to this section, you might be asking at least two questions. The first question you might be asking is, how is this part of the story good news? Now, the first verse of Mark's Gospel tells us that his whole book is about The beginning of the gospel about Jesus Christ, the Son of God. So that word gospel, we call it the gospel of Mark. That word gospel is a word that means good news. In the Roman world, the phrase good news was associated with birthdays, victories, and inaugurations. So if you were announcing that the Roman army had won a great victory over their enemies, or that a new emperor had been born, or had just uh, ascended to the throne, you would use that word. Good news! But when you read this section, it all seems like bad news. Everybody turns against Jesus. No one speaks up for him. No one intervenes on his behalf. Until this point in the story, the crowds in Jerusalem have seemed sympathetic to Jesus. Even excited about Jesus, but in verses 11-15, to they turn on him and say, crucify him. Then Pilate, the judge, declares that Jesus is innocent. Verse 14, he says, what evil has he done? And then he hands him over to be condemned to death. Then the soldiers, the Roman police or military, mock him and beat him. All through the story, everyone turns against Jesus. He's treated in the most humiliating and degrading ways. When you read this passage, I think the natural reaction is to say, see the injustice of it all. How could anything like this be good news? But the second question you might be asking is, why doesn't Jesus take any initiative? Throughout Mark's gospel... Jesus is a man of authoritative action and initiative. So, Jesus calls disciples, he teaches crowds, he heals the sick, he casts out demons, he raises the dead, he calms the storm, he spends all night in prayer, he confronts the Pharisees, he interprets the scriptures, he travels to Jerusalem, he cleanses the temple, he answers questions, he confronts people with questions, he presides at the Passover meal, he does all these things with authority, because he's the Messiah and the Son of God. But in this whole section that we've just read, Jesus takes no initiative. He's only acted upon in the most humiliating ways. The only thing that Jesus does is in verse 23, when they offer him wine mixed with myrrh, and it says he refused it, he didn't take it. Wine mixed with myrrh was sort of a primitive painkiller. An narcotic. It would take the edge off. It would numb the pain, at least a little bit. But Jesus refused. Because Jesus was fully alert, and he wanted to remain fully alert and aware and engaged with all that was happening to him. You see, all that Jesus endured here, he endured willingly and consciously and knowingly. He wasn't disengaged. He didn't shut down. He was just as intentional in his passion, that is, in the things that he suffered as he was in all of his actions and initiatives. As we said last week, Mark wants us to see that Jesus is both the Son of God, who acts with authority, and the suffering Savior, who endures on our behalf. And both of those things are at the core of his identity and mission. And here we see that Jesus displayed his identity not only in his authoritative actions, but also in what he willingly suffered for a purpose. Now we'll see there are three major sections of today's passage. Verse 6 to 15, uh, Jesus is condemned. Verse 16 to 20, Jesus is humiliated. And verse 21 to 32, Jesus is crucified. But in each of these sections, we'll see the same two themes. We'll see first the injustice of it all. But second, we'll see the good news that shines through it all. Let's consider this this first theme, the horrible injustice of it all. This is humanity at its worst. The innocent son of God is condemned to die and a convicted murderer is released instead and the judge knows it. Verse 10, Pilate perceives the motive of the prosecution. He perceives that they're motivated by envy, not simply by truth or justice, And in verse 14, he recognizes Jesus' innocence. And yet, it says he wished to satisfy the crowd. Verse 15. Mm -hmm. Who were themselves being stirred up by the envious leaders. Verse 10. So Pilate released Barabbas, who had committed murder in an uprising against Pilate's own government, not exactly in Pilate's best interest. (laughs) And he gave Jesus over to be scourged and crucified. That word scourged, meant to be stripped naked, bound to a post, and repeatedly beaten, with a leather whip containing pieces of bone and metal. There was no legal limit to the number of lashes that a man condemned to be crucified could receive. Some men died just from the scourging. It was severe, brutal, and bloody. And by verse 21, Jesus was so physically weakened, probably from loss of blood, that he couldn't even carry his own cross. The Romans always required uh, people who were sentenced to crucifixion to carry their own cross. The Gospel of John shows us that Jesus began by carrying his own cross, but apparently uh, during some of the journey he became too weak to carry the heavy beam, And so a passerby. Simon of Cyrene was compelled to do so. So it was brutal, it was painful. But Mark doesn't emphasize the physical brutality even though his readers would have understood that clearly. What he does emphasize is the mocking. How Jesus was repeatedly humiliated. We see this in verse 16 to 20. The soldiers crowned him with thorns, clothed him in a purple cloak, Salute him and kneel before him as if to rub it all in. You say you're the king. But we're really the ones who are in charge. And the shaming didn't end in verse 20. It continued when Jesus was crucified. In verse 21 to 32, crucifixion was designed not just to torture and kill. The victim would eventually die of suffocation. But even more to humiliate. Here's how the historian Tom Holland put it in his description of crucifixion. Exposed to public view, like slabs of meat hung from a market stall, troublesome slaves were nailed to crosses. No death was more contemptible. To be hung naked, long in agony, swelling with ugly wounds on shoulders and chest helpless to beat away the clamorous birds. Such a fate was the worst imaginable. A Roman citizen legally could never be sentenced to crucifixion. Crucifixion was reserved for the lowest the below, for rebellious slaves, violent criminals, and prisoners of war. The Roman author Cicero wrote, Whenever we crucify the guilty, the most crowded roads are chosen where the most people can see and be moved by this fear. You see, crucifixion wasn't only about torture and death. It was also about domination and humiliation. It was about the Romans saying, we're in charge and you're not. And that's how this section ends in verse 29 to 32 with more mocking. Everyone, the passers by, derided him. The chief priests mocked him The criminals crucified with him reviled him too. So Mark wants us to see the horrible injustice of it all. Everyone has turned against Jesus. Jesus has been handed over to humanity at its worst. There's a very important word that Mark repeats several times during his account of Jesus' journey to the cross. And it's this word handed over. Now, depending on the English translation that you're reading, it's often translated in different ways. Sometimes it's translated betrayed. Sometimes it's translated delivered over, as it is in the version we're reading from in verse 10 and verse 15, delivered him up, delivered him to be crucified. But it's always the same word in Greek. Handed over is what we we might say. So let me just read you some of the places leading up to this section where Mark uses this key word. So back in chapter 10, when Jesus is looking forward to his journey to Jerusalem, he says the Son of Man will be handed over. I'm just going to use the same word to translate it in all the verses. It'll be different in different translations, but the same word. Son of Man will be handed over to the chief priests and the scribes, and they'll condemn him to death, and will hand him over to the Gentiles. Chapter 14, verse 10. Judas went to the chief priests in order to hand him over. Chapter 14, verse 41, when the soldiers come to arrest Jesus, Jesus says the Son of Man is being handed over into the hands of sinners. Chapter 15, verse 1, the chief priests handed him over to Pilate. Chapter 15, verse 10, they have handed him over because of men. And chapter 15, verse 15, Pilate handed him over to be crucified. So, on the human level, this word handed over emphasizes the injustice of it all. Judas hands Jesus over to the temple leaders who hand Jesus over to Pilate, who hand him over to the soldiers and to the crowd. But here's the thing about this word handed over. There's a few other passages that use that same word not to talk about the horrible injustice of it all, but to talk about the divine purpose behind it all. So here's a few other verses. Uh, three times in the Greek translation of Isaiah 53, verse 6 and verse 12, this word comes up. All we have seen have gone astray. Everyone has gone astray in his way. And the Lord handed him over for our sins. His soul was handed over to death. He was handed over because of iniquities. Or Acts chapter 2, verse 23. Jesus was handed over according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. Or Romans 8:32. God did not spare his own son, but handed him over for us all. You see, Mark wants us to see the horrible injustice of it all. Jesus is handed over to humanity at his worst. But Mark also wants us to see that there is good news that shines through it all. Because God's purpose was that Jesus might be given over for our salvation, for our deliverance. So in each of these three sections where Jesus is condemned and humiliated and crucified, the good news of God, the saving purpose of God shines through even on the darkest day. So look at the first section. Jesus is condemned to die, and Barabbas is released to live. On one level, that's a horrible injustice. But on another level, that's why Jesus came to earth in he was condemned to die so that guilty sinners could be set free and live. Imagine if you were or us. At the beginning of the day, you're in prison, awaiting an almost certain death sentence. At the end of the day, you're a free man. Verse 27 says, uh, the other two criminals, crucified next to Jesus, were robbers. And John chapter 18 verse 40 uses that same word to describe Barabbas. Barabbas was a robber. That word could also be translated a revolutionary. Barabbas was probably one of, part of one of these zealot movements that wanted to rise up and fight up and violently uh, overthrow the Roman government. If Barabbas had walked outside the city later that day, he would have seen three men hanging on crosses. Two of them were guilty of the same crimes as he was. And then there was Jesus, hanging there in the middle. And if Barabbas looked at Jesus, he could have said to himself, He's there instead of me. Mm -hmm. If he wasn't there, I'd be there. But because he's there, I know. Romans 5.8 says God shows his love for us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. In other words, he died in our place instead of us. We can look at him hanging there and say he hung there instead of me in my place. He took the punishment that I deserved for my rebellion against God. And Romans 8.1 says therefore there is now no condemnation for all who are in Christ Jesus. That's the news. But Jesus didn't only take our guilt upon himself, he also took on our shame. Verses 16 to 20 emphasize this. Now there's a very good book on this topic called Shame Interrupted that explores this theme in a lot of depth. It's not an easy read, uh, but it's well worth your time if you want to dig into this theme a little deeper. Uh, But here's the question that the author of this book begins with. Have you ever felt exposed, humiliated, disgraced, or worthless because of something you did, or because of something that was done to you, or because of something associated with you? Shame is a very common experience, and it can be absolutely debilitating. Many people walk around carrying shame with them. A sense of worthlessness and rejection. And shame doesn't just go away with the passage of time. It's not a wound that automatically heals by itself. But consider the shame that Jesus experienced here. First, Jesus' physical body was dishonored and violated. Three times, verse 17, verse 20, verse 24, Jesus was publicly and forcibly undressed at the whim of the soldiers. When he was crucified, he would have hung there naked, perhaps a loincloth, nothing else, and exposed before the gawking crowds. Second, Jesus was verbally ridiculed scorned by the soldiers in verse 18 and 19, struck and spat upon He had shame and humiliation heaped upon him. And yet this is exactly what Jesus said would happen to him. If you look back in chapter 10, verse 34, Jesus said, They will mock him, referring to himself, and spit on him and flog him and kill him. It's also what the prophet Isaiah said would happen to God's suffering servant. Isaiah 56, chapter 50, verse 6. I gave my back to those who strike and my cheeks to those who pull out the beard. I hid not my face from disgrace and sin. Why does Jesus intentionally endure shame? It's because he comes to meet us in the place of our shame. He doesn't draw back from us. He is not repelled by us. No, he bore the brunt of shame in his own body so that he might become, as the book of Hebrews says, a merciful and faithful advocate on our behalf, who is not unable to sympathize with our weaknesses. Hebrews says that for the joy set before him, Jesus endured the cross, despising the shame. And now he's seated at the place of highest honor, at the right hand of God. See, when we become connected with Jesus, we realize that he endured our shame so that he might share his eternal honor and glory with us. That he was naked, that we might be clothed in his perfect righteousness. That we might know that we are accepted and loved by God the Father. In the year 1919, after the traumatic horrors of World War I, a war that ravaged the continent of Europe for nearly five years. Leaving 20 million dead and 21 million wounded, a man named Edward Chilito wrote a poem entitled Jesus of the Stars. Here's some of what he wrote. The heavens brighten us. They are too calm. In all the universe we have no place. Our wounds are hurting us. Where is the bomb? Lord Jesus, by thy scars we claim thy grace. The other gods were strong, but thou wast weak. They rode, but thou didst stumble to a throne. But to our wounds only God's wounds can speak. And not a god has wounds but thou alone. What are the deepest wounds that you carry with you? The humiliation, the shame. They might not be physical wounds. But will you let the wounds of Christ speak to yours? Isaiah 53 says it's by his wounds that we can be healed. So the glory of God shines in Jesus' condemnation because he came to be condemned so that guilty people like us might be forgiven. The glory of God shines even in Jesus' humiliation so that people like us might receive honor and glory from God. And the glory of God shines, even in Jesus' crucifixion. Look at the taunts in verses 29 and 32. The passage by derided him, the chief priests and scribes mocked him, those who were crucified with him also reviled him. Now Luke tells us a little more information that one of those crucified with him changed his tomb halfway through the day. But Mark shows us that both these guys next to Jesus started off the same way, reviling. And they all say to Jesus, all the people who are taunting him, in verses 29 and 32, they all say, if you're the Messiah, if you're the Son of God, save yourself. Prove your power by coming down from the cross. Mm-hmm. So that's exactly what Jesus didn't come to do. That's right. He didn't come to save himself. He came to save others. He said, I came to give my life as a ransom for men for us. And in this section, Mark shows us at least one person who would come to recognize that truth and who would embrace Jesus as Savior and Lord and become one of his loyal followers. Look at verse 21. Mark 20, uh, Verse 21 mentions three people buying him. Simon of Cyrene, who was compelled to carry Jesus' cross, and his sons, Alexander and Rufus. Now, Cyrene is in North Africa, it's in modern-day Libya. So, Simon was either a visitor to Jerusalem, uh, or an immigrant who had settled near Jerusalem. But why does Mark mention this guy and his two sons by name? Mark doesn't mention anyone else by name in this passage, except for Pilate, who is a well-known public figure, and Barabbas, who would have also been quite well-known. Mark mentions these three people by name because at least some of his readers would have known their names. And uh, around the time Mark wrote his gospel, uh, he was Mark was living in Rome for quite a, uh, at least some time. Uh, he was living in Rome, participating in the church in Rome or one of the churches in Rome. It a big city, so there were many there. And the apostle Paul, in his letter to the Romans, in, in Romans 16 verse 13 mentions a man named Rufus, who was part of the church in Rome. Greek Rufus, chosen in the Lord. So the Christians in Rome, reading Mark's gospel, would have recognized one of their own people. Rufus and Alexander's dad <coughs> carried Jesus' cross. Now we don't know anything else about these guys. We don't know exactly how their story unfolded. But most likely, this was the first time that Simon had encountered Jesus. And later on we see, most likely, one of his, at least one of his sons continuing to follow Jesus. And of course, what Simon does, uh, what Simon is compelled to do here in verse 21 is a picture of what all Christians are called to do, voluntarily, in one form or another. Because Jesus had said, Mark 8:34, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross, and follow me. Simon had to carry Jesus' cross literally, but all of us are called to bear the cross. In other words, to endure suffering for Jesus' sake in one form or another. Uh, Henry Nouwen, uh, who is a Catholic priest, wrote an essay titled From Action to Passion. Okay. Now, if you're familiar with Henry Nouwen, uh, he says several things that I don't always agree with, but he says some things that I think are quite helpful and really hit the nail on the head. Uh, And in this essay, he writes about visiting a 53 year old man, a friend of his, who had lived a very active, useful, faithful, creative life, who would care deeply for people, and then this man got cancer. And the cancer got worse and worse. And this man said, my whole way of thinking of myself is in terms of action, in terms of doing things for people. My life is valuable because I've been able to do a lot of things for a lot of people, but now here I am. I can't even get out of bed. I can't do anything, at least hardly anything that I used to be able to do. And now all sorts of people are doing things to me, and I have so little control. And he said, how do I endure without being driven to despair? How do I, how do I not think that now my life is completely meaningless? I can't do any of the things that I used to. Now, it says some people in this condition, they focus all their hope on the desire to get better and get back to their former activities. And that becomes their only source of hope and strength and motivation. He says, "We, we can do that because our default mode is to think my life is valuable because of what I can do for myself or for others. And if I can't do what I want to do, my life isn't worth living anymore. But now says in his essay, Jesus shows us a different way. He shows us a different way to think about the meaning of our lives. And he says, if you look at the life of Jesus, you can see this movement from action to passion. From taking the initiative to enduring the suffering. He says Jesus didn't just fulfill his calling By doing all the things the Father sent him to do But also letting things be done to him That the Father allowed to be done to him By receiving the initiatives of others Even as we see here He says precisely when Jesus was being handed over Into his passion, into his suffering He manifested his glory That's what we've seen here. The glory of God is revealed even in Jesus' suffering. Even when he is the object of condemnation and humiliation and crucifixion. Here's the point. The glory of God is revealed in the lives of Christians. Not only as we courageously take action and use all the skill and strength God has given us in appropriate ways, but also as we learn to let go, and as we learn to endure suffering, and to receive the initiatives of others, for Jesus' sake, and to do that in a way that points to God and glorifies God.
1: Malin writes, All these insights
0: into Jesus' passing were very important to my friend. He realized that after much hard work, he had to wait. He came to see that his calling would be fulfilled not just in his actions, but also in his suffering. And together we began to understand that precisely in this waiting, the glory of God and our new life in Christ both can become visible. Let's pray. that you endured the suffering of the cross alone. We thank you that you are our merciful and faithful advocate, our high priest, who represents us. We thank you for the good news that shines through even on this dark, dark day. Thank you that while we were still sinners, you died for us. Thank you that you took not only our guilt, but also our shame, that we might know that we are accepted and beloved Thank you. Thank you that you came not to save yourself but to save others. We pray, we pray first of all that we would see you and trust you and love you. We pray that you would help us help our lives to be shaped by the shape of yours. We pray that you would help us to see your glory even, even in unwanted suffering, help us to draw near to you and know your presence with us. Pray all these things in your holy name. Amen. Amen.